I want to give you a great intro first. We have one of the greatest horror directors and writers of all time. He's a true icon. He's created some of the classic Psycho 2, Child's Play, Fright Night, The Langoliers, Thinner. We can go on and on. Class of 1984. We have the legendary, iconic Tom Holland in here for the show today. Tom Holland, how are you? Fine, thank you. Best to you and your listeners. Yes. <laughs> we thank you. It's a true honor to have you here today. And I saw that you have the plug. You're plugging in your novel in the background. Yeah, I put it out there. It's called The Notch. It's on Kindle. Please buy it and read it. Yes, and make sure everyone who's tuned in right now, please go check that out. And unfortunately, because you had great reviews when this novel came out, everyone from Greg Nicotero, all the horror people loved yeah. what you wrote in that. And then COVID came along, and unfortunately... It, it, it got a great review on Publishers Weekly, that's which right. helps to sell the libraries. And a week later, COVID closed down all the libraries. <laughs> so Unbelievable. You, you not only you not only have to be good and do a lot of hard work you have to be a little lucky with your timing you do <laughs> and that's what we have here and congratulations on writing all your novels i know you wanted to pitch some here today but you've been wanting to write novels since you were 13 i've been i ended up as a screenwriter because i couldn't figure out how to write novels so there you go <laughs> <laughs> and now you're doing it and you're working on the sequel to Fright Night. Will this be the return of Jerry Dandridge? Well, it is the return of Jerry Dandridge, but what I'm doing is a trilogy. I finally figured out that I had to write uh, a novel called Fright Night Origins, which is really based on the movie. And because, because I wrote, I, it's Fright Night Origins, Fright Night Aftermath, and Fright Night Billy's Bones. And uh, Aftermath begins immediately after the end of Origins, which is to say after the end of the movie. And so in order to understand the second one, Fright Night Aftermath, I had to write the first one. And I was making the assumption that everybody would buy uh, the Fright Night uh, Aftermath and Billy's Bones had seen the movie. And then I realized talking to readers that a lot of people hadn't seen it or didn't remember it that clearly because they saw it so long ago. And also, if I wrote, if I wrote the not, if I did the novel of, of, of Fright Night, that that it would allow me to explore the inner life of the characters involved, which I didn't have the time to do in the movie. And so I'm I'm able to explicate Charlie Brewster. Uh, Amy Thompson and Evil Ed, Evil Ed, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. And when I finish this, I'm going back to polishing it because I'm through with it, and I'm polishing the uh, the, the draft. And uh, writing novels has been a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. You know, the uh, I could I could be writing screenplays, but the how do you say it? a screenplay is not the thing itself. The screenplay is a blueprint for a movie, which I suppose is why directors are always considered more important than writers. But a novel is the thing itself. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's why I'm writing novels. And I wrote my first novel is The Notch back there. And I also have a collection of short stories called Domestic Disturbances. Now there's also a novelization of Fright Night done in 1985 by uh, Craig Spector and, uh, and the name just flipped out of my head, but he's a great guy. And so that's also for sale on, uh, on Kindle. And in a way I thought the novel, the novelization was enough, but then I realized the novelization was written off the screenplay and the guys wrote it before they ever saw the movie. They wrote it like in March of 1985, and the movie came out or premiered on August 2nd, 1985. So they'd never seen the movie. So you, you read the novelization, and Jerry Dandridge is a terrible guy. He's the antagonist. But if you see the movie, you realize that Jerry had an inner life. There was, you know, there, there was a reason that, that, that he reacted and and was so attracted to Amy. And it has to do with the picture on the painting on the wall mm -hmm. that, uh, that Charlie Brewster sees when, 
when he and the kids go into the house with Peter Vincent to do the vampire test. And you see Charlie react to it as he pulls out the, uh, the packing and the stuff, all the, all the stuff is still about in the big main, uh, main room, the two-story room. And he, he sees the painting, he says, Amy. And that's why it's in the movie, but it was never explained. So I'm taking the opportunity to do that in the Fight Night Origin and Aftermath novel. And so it's been really interesting to go back and, and try to find the novel in the original screenplay and movie. And at first it really scared me because one of the things that makes the movie work as well as, as, as I think it does is that I combine humor and heart and with scares. And it's very, very hard to get the same humor out of a novel. I mean, I think people will see it there, but what I really can do is I can look at the heart and the humanity as well as a very, very strong, you know, plotline or storyline. Anyway, so that's what I've been occupying myself with, with, with writing, as you can see. Mm -hmm. And I've been, I, I like to think that that I'm growing. I like to think that that every novel I write gets better. At least I hope so. <laughs> what about you? What are you doing? What is what is your podcast? What's Mad Max? What you're you're associated with the college? Yes, with St. John's University. That's right. And my podcast focuses on hip hop artists, entertainers, and athletes, actually. And usually during Halloween, because I grew up a huge horror fan, I'm able to reach out to people such as yourself and interview you to discuss your work and contributions to horror. And I love giving back to what you guys did for horror and letting the young audience know, and also the young actors up at the university who listen to this, inspiring actors, if they want to get into horror and become an actor, even screenwriters and directors, and they hear what you have to say to them because you inspire their path. Boy, I never, I never, I never would have believed that all this would have happened to me. It's, in some ways, it's just amazing. I'm very grateful, and I'm pleasantly surprised. Mm -hmm. And as to encouraging people, I try to be, I try to be hopeful, and uh, with a dollop of uh, realistic honesty at the same time. <laughs> With the if, novel, I could, if, I could, if I could make a career out of anybody, could. <laughs> I don't know if they would do it as great as you because you you made some iconic movies and it's it's tough nowadays for people to do that. And we'll get into all that later. But when do you hope to have this Fright Night novel released? Well, I hope to have it finished so I can give it to my to my New York literary agent by Christmas. So it'll probably go out after Christmas. And I'm not going to, I'm, the, the problem with, with publishers and novels is that if they, if they buy it and they decide to publish it, it goes on the carousel and they, they always, they're always at least a year out. And I would like to have Fright Night Origins ready by a year from this Halloween. So if I can't make a deal that gets it published within a year, then I may self-publish. I don't know yet. I mean, I think there's, I think there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a very large fan, affectionate and uh, 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 strong fan base for Fright Night. I mean, I know that there's that there's a, a lot of a, a big wanna read, and I, I'd like to satisfy that. And so, so we'll see how it goes. But let's. I'm not worried about selling it. I'm worried about getting it published a year from now for Halloween. <laughs> I'm sure the horror fans will love that, especially when it comes out a year from now, which is Halloween, and we'll be looking forward to that. I'm curious to know where Chris Sarandon popped into your head and what you thought that he would play a perfect Jerry Dandridge. You mean how did, how did, now say that again, ask again. How did Chris Sarandon pop into your mind as a perfect candidate to play the role of Jerry Dandridge? Oh boy. Well, Chris, Chris, Chris is a brilliant actor. I could go on and on about Chris. The, I was looking for somebody that was a brilliant actor. 
Well, I started out and I wanted Vincent Price. Okay, I mean, you know, I mean, Jerry Dandridge, well, Peter Vincent is a combination of, of Peter Cushing and Vincent Price, but I thought it'd be great to have Vincent Price play. Uh, no, I wanted Vincent Price to play Peter Vincent. That, that was it. I didn't have, I didn't have somebody in mind for the vampire. And I don't remember, it may have been the casting director, but somebody suggested Chris. And Chris had given a brilliant performance in the Academy Award nominated performance in uh, Dog Day Afternoon. And I, I just, he was a marvelous actor. And I went and I, I asked him to do it. And he read it and he loved the screenplay, but he was afraid of a first time director. And so we had a meeting and I must say, I, I, I knew every shot in that movie. I mean, it was, it was in my head. I'd done my own storyboards and I convinced them and we became very, very good friends. And, and well, that's why I cast him in Child's Play. You know, he played, that's not, a, that's not a, a terrific part. He plays the cop. But he did a movie of the week that a lot of people haven't seen called The Stranger Within with Ricky Schroeder and Kate Jackson and gave another brilliant performance. It, it's hard to describe. If, you, if, you, if, 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 if as a director, you find an actor that, is, that, is, that just does terrific work and that you also like and you work well together with, you just keep going back to them. And... I think one of the things that people forget is that is that Chris is also a brilliant voice actor. Mm -hmm. He's Jack Skellington. That's right. Know, in Nightmare Before Christmas, and he just he just came and did the uh, the uh, the voiceover, the reading for a couple of commercials that I did for Fright Night Origins that I that I got ready just to see whether or not I could do it because I'm thinking how do I get how do I get the word out. And I thought to myself, well, if I did 30 second, very short video commercials that I could seed on the web, if I could get out on social media. And I thought, well, if I do that, I, I, I'm not gonna pull clips, all I just needed, all I just did was run the, the, the cast members, you know, but the, but the, but the names from, from the original Fright Night movie. And then behind it, Chris as Jerry Dandridge talks, and I must—they're just terrific. So, but but that was me trying. Anyway, I was amazed how good Chris is as a voice actor, as well as you know, as well as an on-camera actor. So, I just I just really really adore him. And he made he made that relationship in child play with Catherine Hicks work. He did. I mean, he's just you know. There are very, very few people that, that can do that. I mean, you know, talking about brilliant actors. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've worked with some terrific actors. I've been very, very lucky. Mm -hmm. I haven't always liked them a lot, but I've worked with some terrific actors. That's for sure. I was an actor when I started out. I was an actor for years. I was an actor for about 10 years. That's right. And you actually went under the name Tom Feeling. I went in because... Because there was a Tom Holland when I joined, you know, I can't I can't escape people with my name. I was I, the original Tom Holland was a voiceover actor, and I don't know how long ago he passed, maybe back in the eighties, late eighties, and then I could have taken my name again for SAG, but by that time I was long gone from acting, and uh, I did use the name Tom Lee Holland. You can I, I guess start on the Incredible Hulk. Bill Bixby, and I was using Tom Lee Holland, but I turn around and I became Tom Holland, the writer director. And then I find out there's a kid, there's a British kid who played Spider Man, who's <laughs> Tom right. Holland. And once again, you know, I'm, I'm I'm getting confused with another another actor with the same name. So I mean, I don't know why there's something very, there's something about the name Tom Holland that seems to be there are more of them than I ever thought there were. It seems very common. <laughs> yeah, who knew? Yeah. Who knew? <laughs>
Oh, but you mentioned the I, Incredible Hulk. I was here first. I was here first. You were. I'm the original Tom Holland. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you mentioned the Incredible Hulk before. I'm going to assume that's why you cast a Jack Colvin in Child's Play. Yes. Oh, yeah, because I'd acted with him. Mm -hmm. He didn't remember. But he was the doctor. Yeah, he's mm -hmm. terrific. He's another very, very strong actor. Played a great Mr. Bixby. Bill Bixby was a friend too, but we lost him a long time ago. Lovely man. Mm -hmm. That's right. He played David Banner. Right. Classic, classic stuff. I want to take it to the beginning though, because you grew up in Poughkeepsie, so you're you're you know New York pretty well. So we're we're based in Queens. Poughkeepsie, you grew up, you I believe that your mom and dad had a, a small shop in New York, a clothing shop. You found your interest in in reading in movies, the AIP films, Hammer, and you fell in love with horror, and horror was looked down at this time. So you you had a passion for it though, even though a lot of people during the time just looked down upon it. Well, yeah, yeah, you're you're really going back. Yeah, everybody. I'm like a contemporary of Stephen King. Mm -hmm. And when we were, I did, I did two Stephen King projects, you know. That's right. Thinner and thinner in the miniseries Langoliers. But we're talking late 50, mid, mid to late 50s when we were like 10, 11, 12 to, you know, uh, through about mid, through about 1955 through 65. It was a formative period for both of us as kids. And in high school, grade school, you know, in uh, you know, grade school and uh, junior, what they call junior high, then in high school. And the only things that if you were, if you were interested, if you were attracted to horror, and who knows why we are, there were, there were no books to read. There were there were there was H.P. Lovecraft and Edgar Allan Poe, and. There was a Victorian novelist whose names I don't remember right now, the guy who wrote uh, Lady in White. But there, 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 was, there were no popular horror novels and it was looked down on. And then there, was the, then there was the whole reaction to the EC comics, like Tales of the Crypt. I ended up directing three of the Tales of the Crypt. But the EC comics, if, if anybody knows the history of this, I think that they were mid to late 50s. And they came out and kids went crazy for them. And then parents groups got upset and they were banned. And I remember when I was in high school, I'm talking about, you know, sophomore, junior, senior, they banned them. And we would walk around with EC comics hidden in our notebooks, or we would take and we would, we would put them in plastic bags and put them out behind bushes for other kids who were friends to, to, to be able to read. There were so few of them available at that moment in time. And if you look at Stephen's work, so many of the short stories really feel like EC comics. You know, they're, they're, they're short 15 or 20 minute setups with a twist ending. And that includes so much of, uh, of Stephen's work, you know, it's just it's short story work. Uh, and that I can go on and on about Stephen. That's what makes horror really became enormously popular and broken to a huge readership in the middle class. I think because of Stephen. Stephen took and popularized, but Stephen made it safe for 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 people for, for middle class people to read. And one of the ways he did that was by using so many brand names of things that we all used in our house, in our houses. And really it, it started, what was, what was Carrie, 1973? I think that was 1976. Carrie was that late? The movie was 1976. Wow, okay, well the novel, which was a pistol. Was probably earlier, it was probably 73 then. Yeah, 73 or four. But yeah, but the movie really blew, blew it open for Stephen. That's what really kicked it up. And he followed it with two brilliant novels, uh, The Shining and uh, Salem's Lot. I forget which was first. Maybe Salem's Lot was first. The, but that expanded the audience. Mm -hmm. And through that pop popularization, and you could even call it populism because he used so many brand names of things that people use in their everyday lives in their houses, 
uh, it became much more acceptable. And uh, then I think that with, with John Carpenter's Halloween, which I think was 1977. 78. 1978. That kicked off the, uh, the beginning of the, well, I go on. The slasher started with Psycho. The cycle was 1961, and I'd never seen a film like Psycho, and I must have been 13 or 14, and I watched it, of course, terrified. But until 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 Psycho, if you wanted to watch horror films, which I did, you had to watch either Hammer, the English Hammer films, all of which had great sets, and very, very uh, colors. The colors were very saturated, very vivid. And they always shot it from a big wide shot because they wanted to show you the sets. And everybody thinks about Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing in them. But they, they were terrific, but they were also uh, very formal in the way that they were shot. They were shot wide shot. You go in for a two, you go in for an over the shoulder, and you hardly ever did a close up, and you hardly ever did an insert. And then AIP started making them, which was Sam Arkoff and uh, Roger Corman. And it, it expanded, and you started to get more interesting horror films like The Mask of the Red Death. And Vincent Price, who was, who was given a new career by, uh, by Roger Corman. And they started to get a lot more interesting. But then you had the real beginning of the slasher, which, which is really Psycho, the original Psycho. And I'd never seen anything like that in terms of the, of the use of film, the editing of film. I don't even know if I was aware of film being edited until I saw Psycho. The other one that did that was Breathless, uh, Godard's film, where he jumped cut. You know, and he where he he broke all the rules of how film film was supposed to be up until until uh, Breathless and uh, Hitchcock. It was cutting was supposed to be unobtrusive. You were you were not supposed to notice it as a viewer, but I sure as hell did with Psycho. Because Psycho kicked the door open for 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 uh, for Halloween, it and I remember when when we made Psycho Two, which was 1982, and people don't realize it now, but Psycho Two was the second biggest movie in the summer of 1982, after the first uh, sequel to Star Wars. Mm -hmm. But that's how big Psycho Two was. It was, it, was, it, was, it was an enormous hit worldwide. And that was, that was the beginning of the sequelization also. I can't remember whether they'd had, whether they'd sequelized Halloween yet by 1982 or not. Oh yes, and Halloween two came out in 1981. Halloween two in 1981. Okay, when did Friday the, Friday the 13th, when was the second one of those? That was 1981, I believe. That was 81, too. Okay, so, okay. And when was uh, Nightmare on Elm Street? I, I'm pretty sure that was 85. Okay, so that was after. Mm -hmm. So there, there, there was the beginning of, there was the beginning of, uh, of sequelization by 1982. Mm -hmm. But it hadn't become a surefire way to make a hit. Because I remember <coughs> when I took the job of writing Psycho 2, <coughs> nobody wanted to touch it. No. Because Psycho was such a, was by that time, you know, 22 years later, by that time was, was an acknowledged classic. Not a cult classic, but a classic. And you had to figure that whoever tried to do a sequel to a classic was going to get critically savaged. <laughs> and the first movie I'd had was The Beast Within. And The Beast Within was United Artists in 1980. And it made money. 
And I thought it was a brilliant script. And it's 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 very primitive today, but but I mean, but a fun movie at the same time by Philip Morrow, directed by him. But <laughs> it got no notice because it got buried in the wreckage of the of the bankruptcy of United Artists caused by Heaven's Gate. Mm -hmm. And all and all all the media was doing was talking about how Heaven's Gate, you know, bankrupted United Artists, which was a very respected releasing company for for more for a lot of very interesting artistic films actually i'm not sure united artists has ever recovered even till today probably not uh, well they did one of the stupidest things ever done they sold the uh the sequel rights to uh, child's play yeah <laughs> i mean if you, if you can believe that yeah. i mean that's like you know let's bankrupt ourselves and make sure we never make any money the uh, anyway Psycho 2, in order of it was directed by Richard Franklin, Australian, who was a who was who had an academic bet, bent and thought the two greatest directors were Alfred Hitchcock and John Ford, which isn't which isn't a bad choice. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're gonna think of some great director, the greatest directors, that those are those those two guys are pretty good. The, so working with, with, with Richard was like getting a graduate course in Alfred Hitchcock and making suspense films. And I've always thought that, yes, I, I, I'm identified with horror, but really a lot of what I do is I, I do suspense films. And I, 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 I leaven them with humor because, oh, I go on and on, but because when you're when you're doing films about things like a, like a killer doll, like you, you you gotta have you gotta have some humor in it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, the or a vampire, a vampire. I did a movie. What happened is Psycho Two we, was was a, supposed to be a cable movie. Mm -hmm. This is just when cable was coming in. This is just when VHS was coming in, and the war is going on between Betamax and VHS as to which format to use. But they, Universal had no sense that they had an incredibly lucrative title or a title that would, that, would, that would generate a lot of interest from the public. And so I realized that the only way we had a chance to get a feature film release with Psycho 2 was to get Tony Perkins to come back as Norman Bates. And in order to do that, I had to, I had to write not just a horror movie, but an acting piece, which means I needed a character arc that would be so challenging and attractive to an actor that I would get somebody of, of, of Tony's stature. And Tony was a brilliant actor. He really was. He, he was. That's a hell of a performance. The, uh, anyway, Tony said yes. And then Universal put out a press release saying, Tony Perkins is coming back playing Norman Bates and the entire world went mad. And that's when Universal realized that, oh my goodness, we have a feature film here. And they decided to release it as a feature film. They didn't give us any money to make it, mind you. <laughs> you know, because of course. Hitchcock had done the original with his television crew. He'd done it on a very short schedule and I don't think he ever left the back lot. And we didn't leave the back lot except for that one shot in the cemetery where they were they were disinterring mother's body. Uh, so we did it the same. I think we I think we made that movie psycho through direct cost for five million dollars, which today is unimaginable. It is, it is. It was a great experience. It was, it was the last gathering of, of people who had actually worked with, as they said, Mr. Hitchcock. Behind, their, behind his back, they would call him Hitch, but never to his face. <laughs> and everybody had, a, had an overwhelming respect for him. The, the producer of uh, Psycho 2 was Hilton Green, who had been uh, <clears throat> Mr. Hitchcock's first AD on, on Psycho. Uh, you had a script, the script supervisor was a man, I don't remember, you had Vera Miles, who had acted for him again and again, who'd been in uh, 
in the original cycle. It was an amazing experience. And I walked around with my mouth hanging open the entire time. I couldn't believe that, you know, that I was so lucky as to, as to get it filmed, produced, and to be there with all those people and listening to all those Hitchcock stories. Mm-hmm. And you had a cameo in it as well as uh, Sergeant Norris. Yes, I did. I had a small part. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. (laughs) How was it working with Anthony Perkins? We know he's an amazing actor, but how was it the first time meeting him as well? Well, I don't know. That's hard to describe. There's a biography out of of Mike Nichols. Uh, I forget what what it's called, The Life of something Mike Nichols, but it's excellent. And Mike Nichols was a friend with Tony Perkins. And he went and sat with Tony, I think in the last two weeks of Tony's life up on Nichols Canyon Road here in in Hollywood. Uh, Tony was probably one of the most intelligent men I've ever met. And the level of sophistication is hard to describe. I've been meaning to I've been meaning to talk to Chris Sarandon about it for years and I haven't gotten to it. Chris Sarandon rented a room when he was a struggling actor in Tony's house or apartment when he was married to uh, uh, Berenson was her, was her maiden name. I don't remember the first name now, but she was lovely too. Anyway, it was, they were, Tony Perkins' best friend was uh, the great uh, writer of musical comedy, Stephen Sondheim. Okay, you're t- I, you're talking about the the top of the of of the New York society world of uh, 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 in the in in the columns gossip columns in the newspapers, uh, literary uh, aristocracy. Uh, the, the, the height of, of Broadway, Tony was in that very, very small upper level layer. And Tony, 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 Tony wrote uh, a movie that he and Stephen Sondheim uh, wrote a movie about games playing. And Tony was a compulsive intellectual games player in the sense that I, in that at that moment in time, a very popular game was was the movie game. You name a star, I name a movie that star was in. You name another actor that was in that movie, and I name another movie that that, that actor was in, and you keep going. And the better you get at it, the the you're down to character actors, and it's it's a very very few very little known character actors. I mean, you had to have an encyclopedic knowledge of movies to play that game. Well, I was very good at it. And then Tony said, well, let's start playing it with cinematographers and composers. And I was totally lost, but he could do it because he and Stephen Sondheim played the movie trivia game all the time. I mean, it was, it was, a very, it was very, very rarefied intellectual social group that had nothing in it but famous people. And Tony was part of that on the New York City. Mm-hmm. And he was, so he was just fascinating, but he was also intimidating because I'm a nice middle-class boy. He was born in Vassar Hospital in Poughkeepsie, New York, you know? And so, you know, I, I couldn't believe that I was, that I was there. Tony's father was, was Osgood Perkins. He was a, a really well-known character actor in the 30s and 40s. The uh, anyway, Tony was. Tony was. It's hard to describe. He was a lovely guy, but he was also Norman Bates. <laughs> I mean, if you can imagine that combination. Yes. And he had a he had a he had a he had a tortured quality. You know, you know. I mean, and I don't I don't really know all the circumstances of that. But it was a, it was a hell of an experience. Vera Miles was an incredible experience. Mm-hmm. You know, she was supposed to, to play the part in Vertigo that Kim Novak ended up doing, and she was pregnant. That's and, right. And Hitchcock got furious with her. 
because she was pregnant and couldn't be in his movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I've heard about that. Yeah, I was like, you know, I can't believe that. You know, the, uh, you know, the, uh, and anyway, you know, it, it, there's a, there's always a, you have, you have to get past the fact that they were movie stars or very accomplished people as, as writers or directors or, 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 or musical comedy and to get to the people. You know, and, and my experience has been, because I grew up in a, in, a, in a small town and nobody that I knew was in the business. You couldn't have been farther out of it than I was. I had no, no contacts whatsoever, no nepotism, nothing like that. But a lot of the people I met did had connections to help mentor. So I always, I don't know, I mean, I've always been a quintessential fan, Max, on some <laughs> level. I, I can't explain it. I mean, my 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 mother and the we're from Highland, New York. It's a small town across the river, across the Hudson Bridge from Poughkeepsie, from Poughkeepsie. You know, I mean, it's 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 apple orchards and uh, dairy farms and mushroom farms and and you know and people who don't know anything about about Hollywood or, or making movies or, or, or Broadway. I mean, it's, it's grown a lot now because the, the college went into new parts, you know, the, uh, so now it's, 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 it's much more sophisticated. And they put the, they put the freeway out all the way to the new parts. And that brought all the New Yorkers who couldn't afford the Hamptons, that brought them out into the Adirondacks and in the new Pulse and, and the hills around. It's beautiful, beautiful country. But now it's much more sophisticated there. But when I was a kid growing up, nobody was there. No. You know, I mean, you couldn't find, you know, you, you, nobody, nobody talked about books because nobody read books. You know, <laughs> that kind of, nobody talked about movies because hardly anybody went to see them. Uh, I would love to hear the dinner that you attended in which everyone at the dinner voted Psycho 2 the greatest sequel of all time. Yeah, that blew me away. Yeah, I, I got, I've had other other horror directors that I respect have told me that Tarantino told me that, you know, I mean, I, and I, I really didn't know. I mean, it, it, I don't know when I heard that 10, 15 years ago. Wow. I went to a dinner of horror directors given by the blacklist and everybody voted as the best sequel. And I was like, what? And, you know, so, I mean, <laughs> you, you just don't know. I mean, one of my mentors was Henry Farrell. Henry Farrell wrote a little book called uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. I've seen I've The movie's a classic, of course. Yeah. And uh, Henry said to me once, he said, you know, you, you never know. You just keep on writing and just keep on getting it out there. And then some, then about 10, 15, 20 years later, somebody taps you on the back on the shoulder and says, hey, you know that movie you, you did or that thing you wrote? It's really wonderful. And you know something? He was right. That's sort of what happens because we did Psycho 2 was a huge hit. And then I thought everybody forgot about it. You know, and, and, and no, they didn't because so many people who were in the movie business, which is now the streaming business, uh, are compulsory movie watchers. I mean, you know, well, there's so many stories. The uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, directed by Toby Hooper. Toby Hooper, who was a friend. And Toby passed about three or four years ago. And he had a heart attack and they found him in bed. You know what? You know what was on TV? AMC. He was watching classical movies when he died. Wow. I mean, I, I think that's fairly typical. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you talk to, talk to Eli Roth, you talk to, to, uh, to Tarantino, you talk to, talk to anybody in the Masters of Horror group, they are movie files. You know, I mean, they're not, I don't think there's so much TV guys, but my goodness, it's like everybody has seen everything ever made. 
You know, it's like people go home and to relax, they'll watch two or three movies at night. I stand them and they remember them. You know, I stand in awe. And yours is right there with Psycho too. We can't forget about that. One of the, you just wrote an amazing screenplay for this film and it's an amazing follow-up to Alfred Hitchcock, legendary. I would love to hear why you chose to write in which you opened the movie with the shower scene. It was, it was, it was one of the most brilliant montage sequences ever done in film. It is. So, you know, it, it just seemed like an appropriate way to open the movie to remind every, as opposed to trying to ignore the original, we embraced it. Mm -hmm. You know, the, but I, I didn't know. I mean, on my memory, your Psycho 2 got, got great reviews. It did. Because mm -hmm. everybody was so amazed <laughs> that it wasn't, you know, that it wasn't a, 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 that it wasn't terrible. Everybody expected it to be terrible. Yeah. But you, you, you had really had great performances. It was you did. You made Terry's career, you know? I mean, Classic film. It's, it's right up there. Greatest sequels of all time, 100%. No doubt about it. But you, I'd love to hear about your college experience as well. Northwestern and your mother wanted you to have a fallback in which you went to US, UCLA, you pursued law. But during this time, you were using a, a friend's notes to get through law school while you were writing screenplays because the whole point of writing screenplays is that you wanted to get close to directing. Yeah. I. Oh, God, yeah. Well, I had been an actor for... I started acting when I was, I got into, I, I got in by apprenticing at Bucks County Playhouse in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And it was the summer of my 16th birthday. So I started when I was 15. And that was because I had a drama teacher in high school who did have a connection and got me in as an apprentice. And from there, there were no film schools at the time. There was no place you could go to learn how to make movies, but there were theater schools. And from that I got, from, from apprenticing at Bus County, I learned how to, I learned about supposedly the good acting classes in New York City. So I'd be working clerking in, 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 my, in my parents' woman's store, and I'd go into New York on Saturday afternoons, and I'd go take an acting class at what was then called the HP Studio at 22 Bank Street, Herbert Berghoff and Uta Hagen. And from there, I learned about theatrical agents. And I got an agent the summer. I graduated high school and I got into Northwestern University Theater School. Not the film school. They didn't have a film school. There was Carnegie Tech and there was Northwestern. I'm back. I don't even want to tell you how far, how far back I am. The, I'm so old that you know, I'm beginning to accept the... Uh, it was 19... 62, I think. And the, the, so I, I started my first year there and I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't that interested in acting. It was just that that was all that was available. And I found the film school at Northwestern, which was one room. And there were a couple of guys in there and they had some 16 mil projectors. They had some short end 16 millimeter film and they had cold splicers. And we went out and we shot the short film. And the short film was me running my motorcycle off the side of a hill and struggling to get the motorcycle back up to the road, which means he had to cover it in all different ways. He had to cut it. And I, that was my year. That was my first year at Northwestern. And then the summer, that summer, the summer of my, at the end of my first year, through my, through my freshman year and my sophomore year of college, I got a seven-year contract at Warner Brothers. And that was the, the end or the, the dying end of the studio system. And when I look back at it, it was an amazing experience. When I got to Warner Brothers, it was 1963. The, the sets of the Ascot races were still standing on the biggest set at Warner Brothers. This is from My Fair Lady. The exterior set to Camelot which they filmed the musical, was still standing out in the back lot. And once again, I wandered around with my mouth falling open. I watched them shoot a Robin Hood, Robin and the Seven Hoods, the, the, the Dean Martin Rat Pack movie. I stood at the back of the stage and just watched. I could, you know, I was like pinching myself, trying to, I mean, coming, coming from Highland, New York, I, I couldn't believe it. 
And so, you know, that's when I that's when I started to learn a little bit about the mechanics of film. I hung out in the editing rooms. I went and I watched them dub the films and then put the soundtracks in. And then that was over because because it was the last. What happened was movies came. Television came in and they wrecked the movies. It started in the late 40s. And by 1960, Hollywood had switched over to making television series. I think my first acting part was in the last year of 77 Sunset Script. Uh, and uh, I also was in uh, the Jeffrey Hunter Western, which was a series. Anyway, the television series were dying at the studios and the studios were in real trouble. And that, that continued all the way through the 60s. And that really, how lost they were really changed in 1968 with Easy Rider. Easy Rider made a fortune and it was done for next to nothing. And at that point, all the doors were kicked open in Hollywood to new talent, to younger talent, you know, that had a sense of, 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 of that generation's, you know, uh, uh, taste and what they were interested in. And there was a period there where if you became a successful writer, you could also write your way into directing, which is what I did. And that was a moment in time and those doors have long since slammed shut. The, uh, but that was because Hollywood was lost by the late 60s as to what the audience was gonna take. They wrote a book on it, Raging Bull something something, this is when Spielberg came in and uh, the Palma and uh, Dennis Dennis Hopper and you know it was the, there was a very very exciting time to be to, to be young and in Hollywood and I got I really got into writing and directing then but the Psycho Two kicked the doors open I starved for I starved during the I starved I tried to. I got out of acting in 1970 or 71 and started writing screenplays. And I know for five years, I, I, I really wasn't making any money. I was making it doing commercial production, shooting commercials either in front of or behind the camera. And that provided me with an income to keep on writing and to keep the book from the door. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the story of my career. What about <laughs> you? What do you want to do? Me, it's what kind you, of interesting. What do you want to do? <laughs> right now, I, I've I've been confident because I've been in college for the past three years, and I, I'm confident in doing radio. But when I was younger, I wanted to be a writer and director for horror films. But it's just that when I got older, I, I grew an interest in music and sports, and I wanted to be on the radio. But right now, and currently looking for jobs and, and things in the world, as far as radio, the opportunities are kind of slim right now. So I'm looking into getting acting. So it may be turning right back right around here to where I might want to pursue writing and directing. <laughs> everybody, everybody had their own journey. All my life, or ever since I became successful, people would ask me, well, how do I get into it? How do I do this? How do I, everybody has their own journey. You know, I mean, right now, podcasts are huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was involved with, or I am involved with the Stephen King short story called uh, Strawberry Spring. And I was trying to set that up as a streaming series. And I turn around and they've made a podcast out of it, which has become terribly successful. Like, you know, like true crime, true, 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 uh, 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 dramatic crime. Mm -hmm. And so now we have the doors been kicked open a little bit further with getting it done as a streaming series because it's become a success as a podcast. Who knew? I mean, I mean, all I can say is you keep trying to get as many, as many cards in the air as you can, cards being properties, scripts, or, or you know, or, or podcasts. I mean, it seems to me like everybody I know is doing a podcast oh. these days. You know? Yeah, I, it's it's tough because I'm into live radio because I, I this is a live radio show. So you have everyone doing podcasts because podcasts has, has kind of downgraded the live radio scene. Everyone can have a radio show. <laughs> well, I mean, but listen, being able, being able to do interviews and, and make them interesting and fun is a talent. And I, I want to thank you for your time. 
And I, I want to, I want everybody out there who's listening or watching, please just, just keep trying. Get. There's no reason that when I was starting out, it was impossible to make a movie. The equipment was was too big. It was too expensive. The, the, the skills weren't there. It was almost impossible to do a short film. Now you can take your iPhone or Galaxy and shoot it yourself. And I, I, I think also that, you know, it, it seems to me that dramatic podcasts are now taking over. You know, there, there, there's more of that. And if you turn out to be Seth Rogen, you can do, you can do, uh, you can do interviews forever. That's right. Child's Play, this was inspired by Trilogy of Terror, Talkie Tina. I, I've heard the stories already, but just when did you realize that Brad Dourif was the perfect voice for this? Because he would go on to grow this character as a cultural icon in which you created by writing and directing Child's Play in 1988. I had used Brad in a movie that nobody asked me about called Fatal Beauty, Whoopi Goldberg and... Uh, and uh, name just slipped out of my head. The uh, and Brad Dourif was the bad guy, and Brad gave a great performance, and a lot of the performance was his use of voice, because he could sound hysterical, threatening, and like a psycho. You know, he could be very, very scary. Uh, and so I, he was the one I thought of. From the from the from the day I wrote I wrote I wrote Child's Play, the, I, I did a huge rewrite on the original script. I created the, the, the Brad Dourif character, the Hillside Strangler, and that's an example of what I learned from Hitchcock. Brad is only in one scene as as an actor, and that's the opening scene, and you see him dying and putting his soul into that doll. And after that, this is Hitchcock's description of the difference between surprise and suspense. After that, you, the audience, knows that that particular doll is evil. It has a serial murderer inhabiting it, the soul of the doll. But nobody in the movie, neither Karen Hicks nor her little boy, none of them know it. And so you as an audience member sit there with a rising sense of suspense, waiting for them, for the doll to reveal itself as the killer it really is. And that's one of the things that makes Child's Play work as well as it does, besides wonderful performances, especially from Catherine Hicks. Anyway, I think, Max, that it's that time that I, that I go and I, I go back to work and write a few pages. What yes. <laughs> Tom Holland, I want to thank you for coming on the show here today. I had a great time. You're always welcome. Anytime you want to promote any upcoming novels, of course, the Fright Night one that you're going to be planning to release a year from now. And we'd love to have you back on the show. It was an honor. Max, it was, it was, it was lovely talking to you. Very encouraging. Very pleasant. And once thank again, everybody out there, just keep trying. Just keep shooting. Just keep writing. You know, you'll find your own way. God bless. That's right. Bye-bye. Take Thank care, you. Tom. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.